everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Kanya Bennett from the Leadership Conference. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, David. So um, what is the Leadership Conference? Great question. Great question. So the Leadership Conference for Civil and Human Rights is a 70-year-old organization representing a coalition of more than 230 organizations. We are charged by this diverse membership to promote and protect the civil and human rights of all persons in the United States. We are actually the nation's oldest and largest civil rights coalition. We were founded in 1950 by A. Philip Randolph, who was head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, Roy Wilkins of the NAACP, and Arnold Aronson, a leader of the National Jewish Community Relations Advisory Council. So their vision really was that we are stronger together and that the pursuit for social justice and civil rights was not going to be successful with one group alone. And so they came together, they formed this coalition, and we continue to move that agenda forward. We have contributed to all of the major civil rights legislation that has passed in the last several decades. And that includes the Civil Rights Act of 1957, the Civil Rights Act of 1960, the 64 Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the Fair Housing Act of 1968. And we also helped to organize the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom in 1963. And this federal advocacy that we still do is really a part of our DNA and that government affairs team is where I sit as the managing director for government affairs at the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. So how is it that you got to this place? Yes. So the Leadership Conference has always been a part of my work here in Washington. As I mentioned, the organization consists of more than 200 members. I have worked for coalition members. Most recently, I worked at the ACLU as a legislative attorney there advancing criminal justice policy before the federal government. I also recently worked at the Bail Project. While not a coalition member, it's certainly a close partner to the Leadership Conference as we work on pretrial reform. So the Leadership Conference has always been familial. It has always been familiar, and I am 
happy to actually formally be a part of the organization, working internally with my colleagues and externally with so many wonderful, impactful partners. This is always the work I envision doing. So what does your current work look like? Yes, great question. So my day-to-day looks like harassing members of Congress and their staff, the White House and their agencies to push civil rights policy. The members, in theory, it's August, it's supposed to be quiet. They are supposed to be at home in their districts, convincing their constituents that they have been in Washington doing what they sent them to do. But it really hasn't been all that quiet. It really hasn't been a quiet August recess. The members had contemplated, in addition to taking up a budget reconciliation bill, they also talked about taking up a policing bill, legislation that would make continued investments in law enforcement without the accountability measures tied to them. And so, as you likely know, David, in the aftermath of so many deaths at the hands of police, unfortunately, and George Floyd being the latest to really activate and motivate people, we have been pushing for permanent legislation. We've been pushing for federal statutes that will allow us to prevent police violence and ensure police accountability when it does happen. We know that there was a White House executive order that has offered some reforms for federal law enforcement, and we hope that that incentivizes state and locals to follow suit. But an executive order is not permanent. It can be undone by the next administration. It can be undone at any time. So we really want to make sure that we codify some of the policies that were offered in the George Floyd justice and policing legislation. Yeah, you know, you make an interesting point. It seems like this, this is the year without an August. Usually August is kind of the quiet season for... For us, and it seems like this August has been just crazy. Yes, it has. <laughs> Is something in the water or what, what's going on here? Well, you know, I think the something in the water might be those midterm elections. And I believe that members are really trying to appease several different constituencies at one time trying to appease communities that have been long seeking police reform, also seeking to appease law enforcement communities that are asking for more resources, that are asking for more dollars from the federal government, are asking for additional officers. And so in trying to reconcile all of these interests, it's what August is now being spent doing. And I can't say that the members have figured out a good path forward or a good compromise here. Well, I I think it's personally, we have air conditioning now, so people don't have to go home for August. (laughs) (laughs) Um, More seriously. So, um, you know, I want to talk to you about the policing stuff because, you know, um, I actually got into this space on police issues. you know, 16 or so years ago, pushing for police oversight, which seemed like 
it was a modest proposal and it turned into, um, you know, a holy war. Um, how do we, well, let me ask you this, um, you know, what are your thoughts on what Biden has proposed? And obviously we know there are limitations for executive orders um, because as soon as the next president comes in, uh, they can undo it all. Uh, what are the prospects that Congress can actually act on something? Absolutely. And that is what we are constantly working to figure out day to day. So the executive order that President Biden issued at the end of May was welcome, certainly. But we know that there are shortcomings, largely because the state and local law enforcement cannot be compelled to do anything through that executive order. Certainly there is work to be done with our federal law enforcement and they can model to state and locals what should be done. But again, the vast majority of policing is done at the state and local level. So we've got to really figure out how to incentivize better behavior at those levels. So we know that that executive order really needs to be coupled with federal legislation. We also know that to incentivize state and locals, we need to use the federal dollars. We need to use Congress's purse string to ensure that if there are reforms and mandates that we want to see, that Congress ties money to those reforms so that those are actually embraced and owned and implemented. And certainly Congress has the ability to do it. It is, do they have the political will to do it? And that is what we are constantly trying to figure out each day. And certainly just a few weeks ago, as President Biden issued the Safer America plan, his proposal to Congress to fund these investments in our justice system, we see that there are some favorable recommendations in terms of money that Congress should allocate. But we also see calls for 100,000 more law enforcement. And so, again, as all of our policymakers are trying to do this dance where every constituency is pleased, I think what happens is most constituencies end up unhappy. It's very hard to make a call for 100,000 law enforcement officers and for the civil rights community to be supportive of that call when we don't know how those police officers are going to be held accountable in their day-to-day. -day. Yeah, and, and that was one of the questions I was actually going to ask you about is I've seen a lot of criticism of uh, Biden's plan, which has a lot of good parts to it. But uh, the biggest concern is more policing, which necessarily, let's be honest, necessarily means more uh, policing of communities of color and disadvantaged communities. Um, and and there, there's a real feeling like, you know, I, and, and I read it somewhere, I don't even remember where, but, you know, the history of policing is, is Communities of color are underprotected and overpoliced, and maybe that's a concept that uh, you're able to explain a little bit. No, that's exactly right, and and part of it is when you 
take many steps back to consider the origins of policing and you realize that forces were essentially organized as slave patrols to ensure that those who were enslaved remained enslaved, did not pursue freedom. If pursuit of freedom was sought, you had law enforcement at the ready to respond and restore that law and order as it pertained to how Black people, enslaved people, were going to have a presence in society. And so when you fast forward to today, you realize that status quo policing is largely reflective of those origins. And you realize that, as you indicated, the communities, communities of color that are most underserved, that would benefit the most from resources that would limit the need for the police presence that it currently has are the ones that are over-policed. That our society has, perhaps by design, decided to use law enforcement as a means of social control for our Black communities and our other communities of color. And at the same time, you know, communities of color are underprotected by the police, which seems to be contradictory to the notion of uh, over-policed. Yes, that is right. So they are certainly underprotected. And again, we know that we are relying on law enforcement in this day to really fill in for so many social supports that are really needed. And so when we talk about Black communities being underprotected, we should think about it really as not needing protection from the police as much as it is about needing the supports, needing the resources that take us away from the criminal legal system, that take us away from this criminalization approach, that have us thinking of responses that are other than those that fall under the law and order category. And so again, it is communities of color that are with inadequate access to education and employment and housing and healthcare and childcare and all of the things that we need in society, that we need in our communities immediately that will really prevent these encounters and this entrapment with the criminal legal system. And, and one of the issues that we have seen out here in California pop up has, has been, uh, especially in, in San Francisco in the last couple of months, has been kind of the, the re-ignition, I guess, of the war on drugs. And, um, you know, we've seen San Francisco's newly appointed DA uh, has kind of made uh, drug uh, interdiction efforts uh, a high priority. And yet we know that um, the black community versus the white community, there's really not a huge difference uh, in terms of drug use, drug dealing. Uh, what is different though, is the amount of law enforcement involved. And, um, you know, I think I, I think the number that I saw recently is like six to one, uh, where uh, where wh 
white people and black people are using about the same levels of drugs, uh, maybe even slightly advantaged toward white people, and yet black people encounter law enforcement and get caught up in the criminal legal system at a six to one rate over white people, um, which just seems to be feeding this inequity. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And it's interesting that this is happening as we attempt to legalize marijuana in the vast majority of our states. It is interesting that we continue to fall back on the same war on drugs tactics, again, really as a means of social control for certain populations. So on the one hand, our society wants to be progressive when it comes to certain policies. And then on the other, it wants to be restrictive, again, because that is the way that we have been able to maintain a social hierarchy here in this country. And the statistics that you touch on with respect to drug arrests and how those measure against drug use and drug possession, and then ultimately those who are jailed and sentenced and imprisoned for drug offenses really mirror the, the disproportionate representation we see of people of color in every aspect of the system. And so it's it's not surprising that we're seeing this resurgent there in some of our communities, this resurgent of the drug war that is going to, of course, disproportionately impact black and brown people. We know that black people are about 13% of the population, but making up 22% of those fatally killed by police. We know that when it comes to those folks who are in our jails, that almost 70% are people of color. We also know that people of color are subject to higher bails, that Black men get bail set at an amount that is 35% higher than that set for white men. These are all very sobering statistics and really, again, reflect how our criminal legal system has been used to maintain and oppress and marginalize communities of color. Yeah, and I think, you know, the relationship between the war on drugs and and police killing uh, black and brown people um, has been kind of understated, I think, in the media. Um, and and there are probably a lot of angles to this, but but, you know, one of the things that really jumps out to me is that because police encounter and and disrupt uh, drug markets, it creates competition. Uh, it, it creates a vacuum, which creates competition, which leads to more violence, which leads to more confrontation between police and and people of color. And this this just seems to be a cycle that that never ends. That's right. This is true. This is unfortunate. And again, it is by design, which is why the leadership conference, we believe that the entire system really needs to be disrupted. We know that a more holistic 
approach to public safety needs to be advanced, needs to be pursued. And as you're mentioning, we know that once we try to reform one piece of the system, another piece is going to pop up that's going to be just as oppressive, just as criminalizing. So we offer the vision for justice as a means to really remedy the system as a whole, to really change how we and the public think about public safety. Again, it's really about making investments in community, making investments in supports, and really decreasing the reliance that we have on our criminal legal system. And there's there's no patchworking, there's no more band-aids that can be done to try to make this imperfect system one that is workable. Not if we want to see the inequities in our system, the racial inequities go away. So from your perspective, are you optimistic right now or are you pessimistic in terms of the ability to restructure, I don't know if I like the word reform, uh, the system? So we are optimistic. We are optimistic in the in the sense that we certainly have the research and, and data on our side. Now, while we may not have the messaging on our side, that is something that can be managed. That is something that can be addressed. We can figure out how to better reach the public, better reach our, our constituents. We know that with this this uptick in crime that really is is attributed to to the pandemic that it's not a result of the places that have gone and made some some modest but progressive reforms we're we're able to point to research and studies that show that this uptick is not inconsistent with what one would imagine happening when you're experiencing substantial job loss, housing insecurity, mental health needs in the midst of a pandemic. And so equipped with that knowledge and equipped with that data, we are able to go to policymakers and push them on the reforms that we have in place. I'm, I'm optimistic that we, given the fact that members of Congress did not move forward with the policing legislation as originally planned a couple of weeks ago, that there is some appreciation, there is some real seriousness uh, being taken with respect to the agenda we are advancing. Understanding that we can't continue to dump more and more money into law enforcement without accountability measures. And I believe an appreciation for the fact that, you know, if that were the cure, if that were going to resolve things, we've done it. We've been doing that since the war on drugs. We've been doing that for several decades, pouring more and more money into our status quo criminal legal system and getting exactly the same results. And so for those who are really earnest and really desire to see more, more whole and humane communities unfold, 
I'm optimistic, we are optimistic as a coalition that we are going to move forward in the right direction. We know that change takes time. It does not happen overnight. We know that there will certainly be setbacks to the agenda and that there are always political whims at play that can have a detour, cause a detour. But we know that we'll get back on track and that we will move this, this reform agenda forward, this restructuring agenda forward as you like to think about it. Um, you know, it's, it, it's interesting. I, I think I'm both an optimist and a pessimist at the same time. It, it um, is possible. <laughs> that, is a, that is something one can be, yes. Um, because I do see progress, but I, I just, sometimes it just feels like it's one step forward, two steps back. Sure. Um, you know, and, and speaking of which, you know, uh, the Breonna Taylor um, case is, is, is really fascinating along those lines, because in, in, in some ways it represents, um, you know, more of the same and in some ways, there's actually been progress. Uh, well, what's your take on the recent development there? Sure. So again, if we're talking about progress with respect to the status quo system and actually having charges brought against officers who were deemed responsible for Breonna Taylor's death, then, then that is viewed as a as a win, again, as we're thinking about, as we're thinking about justice in our in our current criminal legal system and the current status quo. And I certainly think that this, this justice in a traditional sense will, will bring some solace to certainly Breonna Taylor's family bring solace to the Louisville community and certainly other communities that are subject routinely to police violence and have experienced, because really no, no community is immune from this, have experienced the police violence that we witnessed in Breonna Taylor's case. In the end, though, we'll continue to have these conversations unless we're thinking about this systemically, unless we are pursuing justice in a way that is outside of our broken system. We've absolutely got to change how we're thinking about public safety. And we know at the end of the day that, you know, our justice system has really robbed too many communities, Black communities in particular, of the resources they need and they deserve. And while Again, in the traditional sense, we are optimistic that justice is being pursued around Breonna Taylor. At the end of the day, real justice is actually going to look like us changing our, our approach to public safety and not settling for the status quo and the few times that we get remedy in this system. And that's really one of the reasons why we are pushing for for more insight into the policing that is happening in our communities. And, you know, we're doing that through Accountable Now. And 
what we're doing is, is really trying to look at police use of force throughout the country with a database. And we've been really asking the federal government, we've been asking other stakeholders to offer that information so that we can better understand community and police dynamics, better pre prevent another situation like that, which we witnessed around Breonna Taylor's death. And so with projects and programs like this, we will continue to push for a change to that status quo system that I've been complaining about. And in an ideal world, we wouldn't have to have a project like Accountable Now. And it's our hope that Accountable Now can serve as a template for what uh, a mandatory national public database of police actions might look like. Until then, though, we will continue to try to sort of take a small win in the traditional systems where we can and, and move forward with our efforts. Yeah, and it, it sounds like your thoughts are, are very similar to mine. I was uh, writing this morning on uh, the Ahmad Arbery uh case and and it's it's two sides of the same coin basically because on the one hand um you know for for way too long you know black lives didn't matter and you didn't see any kind of accountability uh when when somebody was killed either by the police or in a white supremacy case as, as it was in uh the arbory case um, but on the other hand, you know, uh, having a, a carceral so, uh, solution is not, not the way to go. Um, because, right. you know, in, in the case of Breonna Taylor, um, you know, we have all of these dynamic raid situations where, where there are no-knock warrants being served and, and shots are being fired by the police. And, and and simple accountability isn't enough because you know accountability doesn't bring back uh, Brianna Taylor, um, right. and so that that's a crucial thing. And, and and having police being able to raid people's homes where people don't know what's going on in the middle of the night and then firing shots and and putting innocent people at risk is just not a good situation. And and we just see this over and over again, um, where we we need to uh, we need to stop the way that police uh, do their business, and not deal with this after the fact. That that's that's where that's I right. come down. That's right. Um, so you know we're 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 just about out of time, but I mean, you know, what what's your overall assessment? What would you like to see happen in the next few months? Absolutely. So we talked a bit about midterms at the start of our conversation, which then brings me to another leadership conference effort called Vote for Justice, which is connected to our platform, our Vision for Justice platform that, again, pushes for this holistic approach to public safety, these investments in community, these non-carceral investments in community that need to be 
taken. And so what Vote for Justice is doing is, is really equipping constituents with the policies that we would like to see, that they would like to see uh, with respect to the criminal legal system. And so understanding those policies and equipping oneself with that knowledge as they head into the November elections and figure out which policymakers are in line with those proposals that they support, those policy fixes that are going to change the way in which this holistic vision you just you just described, change the way in which we're approaching the criminal legal system is really where we encourage folks to be focused in the next several months. We know that elections are critical, they have substantial outcomes, and that if we can use our, our freedom to vote by committing to being a justice voter, to educating our communities about the Vision for Justice platform, then we can, we can move a step forward and we can stop this sort of cycle with respect to police violence and other injustices in our criminal legal system. Um, let me ask you one more question. Uh, how can people learn more uh, about the leadership conference and are there avenues for them to get involved? Absolutely. Thank you, David. So we are, of course, at civilrights.org and can be found on every social media platform. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can find our Vision for Justice platform at visionforjustice.org. You will find links on that page to vote for justice. You can also find our Accountable Now uh, effort reflected there on our website as well. So the things to plug into with respect to the Leadership Conference work, again, civilrights.org, accountablenow.com, and visionforjustice.org. Very good. All right. Thank you so much, Kanya, for joining us. Thanks so much, David, for your interest in taking the time to talk. Kanya Bennett from the Leadership Conference has been talking about their very important work in Washington, D.C. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening, Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.